This is Republic of INSEAD, the 20 years later O3D podcast edition. I am Milena Ivanova and will be your host in this limited series. So, here we are, 20 years later, hopefully all the wiser, naturally smarter and as charming as ever. There were 432 of us in the O3D vintage. And certainly, there are 432 unique and very interesting personal and professional stories to tell. While I cannot physically cover all, I have tried to make a selection of stories that will keep you interested and curious and will hopefully convince you to join us on campus for reunion. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition and enjoy the show. Well, 18 days to reunion, if you can believe that. Before we get into a conversation with my guest today, a few announcements to get the level of anticipation up, up and away. First things first, as of 18 September, 149 of us have signed up for reunion, 199 including partners. That is 36% of the class. Just awesome and makes us the org committee super happy. Secondly, you should have received an email in your inbox with regards to a private dinner and a party on October 6th. Do check your emails and sign up as soon as possible if you'd like more time with fellow souls. The org committee and Sofia Marimba in particular have spent a lot of time chasing after venues and other suppliers, which, as you may imagine, is not a simple matter in France. Lastly, I hope you are enjoying the podcast. This latest episode has been edited and put together on flights between Sofia and Belisi. Talk about dedication. Not an easy thing to run with during a summer break. A bunch more episodes coming out pre-reunion, so stay tuned and be ready for a deluge. And now on to guest number 18. Let's see how quickly you figure this one out. Enjoy and see you soon. All right, so... How many candidates for president did we have during our school year? Well, I remember two. So, let's see whether this candidate's Republic of INSEAD yearbook entry would help you figure out quickly who I'm speaking with today. So, let's start. GMAT, to his rugby brethren, he has almost learned the basics of the game and has better memories of his careers since regaining consciousness. He excelled at class participation through a repertoire of hand movements and continual interjection, no matter how hungover. I I couldn't keep my face straight, people. As E9 academic rep, he was challenged by high student expectations and the manner in which the school sought to meet this, Floridian attorneys being one example. His track record and support base made him an obvious presidential candidate Yet, despite visible campaign wins, Rasmus chanting USA, and pledges to bringing McDonald's into both the canteen and CMS, the electorate were just not ready to move campus to Arkansas. He lives with his wife, Denise, and their humongous cat, Vodka. They love cooking, and their dinners are renowned for more than just post-meal guitar singing. We hope that wherever they end up, they continue this great INSEAD tradition. End of quotation. So, well, nice choice of name for the cat. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast and good morning to you. East Coast good West morning. these days, right? Uh, good morning. Yeah, exactly right. 
Oh, that's really funny hearing that stuff again. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> yeah, all very accurate as well. Mm, oh, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, well, I did tell you, but let me repeat it again. You are a perfectly fine candidate. But as I told you, the problem you had was you didn't have E6 and the Bulgarian Mafia behind you. That was the real problem. And I... that sealed your fate. So keep that in mind for next time. Always a good idea to have a few Bulgarians. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. There you go. Well, I'm good, referring... a good lesson in politics already that the Bulgarian Mafia are key to success. Is that uh, where we're starting? <laughs> And then there was the Insiad Dean, right? So That's true. there you go. <laughs> so, but you, you would have made an amazing president. And in hindsight, you know, I would have supported you. That, that's, that's touching. I, I, <laughs> that, in fact, now I, I realize um, not winning that is maybe my biggest regret. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, don't start from the end of the show. No, Let's... I hadn't really thought that through until just now. That, that was... <laughs> Both could have been my proudest achievement and biggest regret. I love it. There you go. So you were an academic rep. So you've been very active. Very active there. Are you still doing dinner parties with Denise or? You know, we, not consciously, but COVID sort of killed it for us. Mm. Um, not, Not that we, you know, won't have people over, but somehow we just got out of practice. Mm sorry, moving countries and then COVID, yeah. um, the two things together. All through London we were, we still had, uh, we still had big Thanksgivings all the way through to the point yeah. that we left, um, which was definitely a tradition started at INSEAD and remained uh, the sort of best holiday we had for mm. ages. There um, you go. So, so let's rewind and start from the beginning, 20 years in five minutes. Can you do that? 20 years. Sure. I don't think it's going to take five minutes, but I'll, um, I'll fill up as much time as I can. All right. So after INSEAD, I moved to London. Uh, Denise had a job at the Royal Opera House, which was the reason we moved. I didn't have a job at all. Um, so got there, tried to figure it out, did a bit of consulting, and then quickly joined BCG. Uh, worked at BCG for a few years, uh, three years. Had a great experience in general. Uh, across a bunch of industries, met a bunch of people, moved to a company called Albion Ventures, which was originally part of Close Brothers Bank, did venture investment first in tech and growth, and then realized I was at best very mediocre at that and started focusing on more asset-based investment and in particular renewable energy. And it was a time when renewable energy was an exciting place to be. There weren't a lot of very capable professionals in it, which is why I could fit in so well. And there was a huge amount of profit to be made from doing it. And so we set up a renewable energy investment business within Albion, did that for a few years. And then in 2013, um, just over 10 years ago, left and set up uh, my own business with a partner from INSEAD and another friend to build, own and operate renewable energy power stations in the UK. Um, so we did about 25 solar, wind, and some hydro projects. Uh, we invested about a half a billion dollars at that time, um, had some great successes. Um, I moved then to the States in 2017 to set up our U.S. business. And that business has become a 
solar developer, partnered with Jeff Clay in Texas, partnered with another friend who's married to an Otter in, um, in New York and set up two solar development businesses, which have since developed and sold around 10 gigawatts of solar assets. And then in 2019, um, I stepped back from the day-to-day running of that business and focused on a new business line within the same group, uh, which is regenerative farming. And so now uh, I run a business that buys um, large-scale grain farms in the Midwest of the U.S., converts those farms to organic, and then operates the farms in line with regenerative farming principles. And that's more or less it for the career. On the personal side, uh, Denise and I had our first kid in 2005, Casey, who's now 18. Um, and she is one, she has one year left in high school. Uh, Dylan was born two years later. He's 16, two years left in high school. Vodka obviously died of morbid obesity. And since then, we have now a dog and multiple cats and just lots of animals running around the house. None, none with quite the weight problem that our, our original cat had. <laughs> morbid obesity. <laughs> It was a bit, he was such a big, such a big, very sweet, couldn't move very fast or very far. Nice. So that's about it. Live in Philadelphia now after 15 years or 14 years in London. Had never lived in Philadelphia before. Uh, It's a great city. Um, uh, Yeah, and enjoying it. How did you choose Philadelphia? Or it was for the business? Practical considerations. When I moved here, I was still working in the UK. We were still doing UK business. And so I had to be five hour time difference. I couldn't go to the West Coast. Um, I had to have a direct flight because I was going back a week every month or, or more. So it had to be easy back and forth. The kids were 10 and 12 and didn't really want to live in New York. It didn't feel like the right thing to jump from London to New York with kids that age. And so I assumed we would live in, basically in the suburbs, live in Westchester or upstate New York. And we came and did a family road trip up the East Coast. Uh, my brother's in Baltimore, went to DC, and I had a meeting in Philadelphia at the time. Um, uh, so we stopped in Philly for one night. When I went to the meeting, I thought it was great. Went to the meeting, Denise checked it out, went and saw some schools. She was like, we should stay here a couple more nights. This is incredible. Uh, found a neighborhood we liked. Um, and then just moved. That's been great. It's a livable, affordable city. You can hire people, pay them a living wage, and it's super close to New York. It's an hour and a half from the city. Um, so yeah, we've had a great time. So I was speaking with Fulco earlier, and he was saying they had a bunch of different postings around the world, and then they had a bit of a readjustment shock coming back to the Netherlands. Did you have any readjustment? Did you need to get used back yeah. to the, um, the ways of America? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we came back very shortly after the Trump presidency began. Um, so it was an exciting time, I would describe it as. Uh, a little bit challenging yeah, I mean, generally the geopolitical environment that we came back into was a little bit scary and not necessarily one that I would have uh, chosen if I had to do it again. 
And the US is crazy polarized place. And as someone who now works a lot in rural Nebraska and rural Illinois and rural Michigan and Texas, um, I think I have more visibility to the divide and what's going on than, than certainly I used to. But actually just the, the yeah, American culture has taken some getting used to again. <laughs> so this whole thing, actually, Erasmus chanting USA, that's where it all started from 20 it's, years it's ago. Weird. Erasmus, it's your fault. I'm just kidding. All right, all right. <laughs> deep, deep patriotism from, from that. No, I, I mean, Erasmus chanting USA. Yeah, that's actually burned in my, in my memory now. Sitting at the, standing at the front of that lecture hall. I, I think he understood that it was all meant to be ironic. Um, mm. And I wasn't being serious. Uh, I'm pretty sure he did. Um, <laughs> right. So what did you say were the biggest challenges of these 20 years for you? I think hardest for me is, is, has been navigating macroeconomic trends and, and changes. And I felt like I started my career in the tech industry in Seattle right before the dot-com bust and the tech implosion. And it was a pretty severe grounding in when times are good and times are bad and how quickly things change. And then I moved to a bank-owned venture capital fund in 2007 in London, right before the financial economic crisis. I'm not saying these are my fault or anything you know directly related, but it seems like I had some very bad timing and again, had to sort of weather the storm. And that's been, I think that's been thematic for me is, is thinking through economic cycles and macroeconomic changes and, and working and, and building, um, building my career on managing my way through both the good times and taking advantage of opportunity when it's there and, and the bad times and making sure that that things are are in good shape when I'm when I'm there. What? And then the other the other sorry the other challenge is, is the same thing I think everybody's faced, which is just balancing personal needs, um, the need to you know support a family and uh, uh, pay the mortgage and pay school fees with job opportunity and, and desires and, and the things you want to do in your career. Um, and I'm super lucky and Denise has been unbelievably supportive the whole time. And so when we decide to move to Philadelphia, she's all in, but that's, you know, that's always a consideration is that's remains the first priority. And so how do you balance things? I, was, I mean, one observation or comment is despite your poor timing with macro trends, you have come out on the right side of things. So I guess. But how do you, how do you balance? Do you have yeah, a I, or... It's a lot easier now than it used to be. That's for sure. For me, it was priority setting. It, it was the, 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 my partner, when we set up Belltown uh, and I had the same priorities, we all wanted to do well. We wanted our business to do well, but mostly we wanted to have healthy and happy families. And so that was always the first priority. And given that was the first priority, it, uh, it, uh, it made the second priority, which was making the business successful much clearer uh, and easier to manage. There. 
So this is along the lines of being your own boss or being an entrepreneur, which is a double-edged sword, right? Because you're your own boss, but then it's very easy to forget to switch off. So yeah, I I I probably work less hours now than certainly than I did at, at BCG or, or places like that. But the hours are spread out over much longer periods and that I'm always just doing a little bit of work all the time. But I, I like that. I mean, I love my job. I love what I do. I find it academically interesting. I find it people interesting. Business. I, you know, all of the things, that, the things that I work on are things that I want to be moving forward. And, um, and so I don't mind. I don't mind dipping in and out of things. All right. Also, so I think I have a mm-hmm. low attention span as well. So it's it's good for me to jump in and out of things. <laughs> All right. So let's let's unpack the energy, the renewables, and then the agriculture two businesses that or two yep. sectors that you've been invested in. So you want to start with energy and what you yeah. see and where things are headed because there was a big change on top of everything now in the US with the <clears throat> Inflation Reduction Act and all that. Yeah. What's happening yeah, there? Sure. It's, um, so when I started in renewables, I was slightly kidding that it was that nobody knew what they were doing, but only slightly. I mean, it, sort of 10, 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, really, renewable energy was dominated by super passionate evangelical uh, uh, you know leaders who desired nothing more than change to the you know, global climate problem global energy problem and didn't necessarily know how to run businesses or, or manage uh, finances and that was amazing and led to a huge amount of subsidies and opportunities to create value um, which was then taken up by a bunch of people like me and my business partner and and other professional investors who who were interested in having an impact and interested in making change uh, and applied it to an industry where there was economic opportunity. And then over the last 10 years, that's shifted from essentially transitional businesses to now just big businesses. And so the buyers and operators of renewable energy today are mega utilities. And so instead of it being small entrepreneurial or private equity led or fund led economy, it's, it's the mega utilities that are driving the energy change. And that, I mean, that's the most exciting part, right? Because now energy isn't renewable energy. Energy is just a renewable is just part of the mix. In fact, it's the cheapest part of the mix. It's the, the most economically obvious part for everyone to build. And it's, so it's where the investment capital is going in. So it's become in some ways, super boring, which is the best thing that could have happened to it. And so that by itself has been a a fantastic transition to watch. And we've changed our role over time from raising funds, you know, developing, building, buying, owning, operating uh, all the way through the supply um, chain to to being energy, uh, essentially an energy company to earlier and earlier stage, early stage development, all of which is is sort of matching where the economic opportunity has shifted. There is clearly still economic opportunity left in renewable energy. And because of the Inflation Reduction Act and similar policies around the world and shift need for battery storage 
and potentially a new hydrogen economy and, and grid upgrades require, there's still a lot of work to do. But I think those key things like how do you manage the grid? How do you transport energy in an effective way? How do you load balance in ways that don't match a historic grid, but, but now match a new dynamic uh, generation grid are, are the problems that, that we want to solve in the future. Um, and the ones that certainly get me excited in terms of, of, of renewable energy. So I was telling you last weekend, I was back on campus and there was a scientist talking to us about climate change and well, the whole, not just climate, but the whole, all the breaking points, which we are hitting as a planet, thanks to us and our genes. So, and then you said you are not as pessimistic. And so give me again, or give the listeners, because I've heard it. What was your premise there for your optimism? Yeah. I mean, we used to look at curves for, um, for solar and wind deployment uh, globally and in the UK when we were starting these business, uh, the business. And every time you looked at a forecast curve for deployment, it was significantly understated. And it was this gap between, well, this is how much manufacturing, this is what we expect, this is the pace, this is a reasonable growth rate that someone academic would be doing. And just the economic driver and profitability of the sector and, and where it had moved. And so the drive now, which is an economic drive as opposed to a, a, just an ethical drive, um, is creating big change in the sector. And I, I see a path towards towards significant uh, um, change in the grid structure to a much, much uh, higher use of renewable energy. And then the same thing on, on the automotive side and transport side. You know, the, five years ago, electric cars were a complete novelty. Uh, a handful of people had them, you know, people who could afford Teslas or people who <clears throat> were buying them again because they were feeling really strongly about the need for change. And now people buy electric cars because they're just the best cars that are made and they're the most fun to drive and they're the, the, the most usable and, and most obvious thing to do. And so that transfer from people feeling obliged to, to change to things becoming mass market, I can, I can feel that change happening. I don't know that it's going to happen as quickly as in fact, I know it's not going to happen as quickly as we need it to happen. And, and I would like it to be quicker. Uh, and all of the, the drive that, that people feel and, and concern that they have when they listen to people talk about climate change will only help make that quicker and drive the, the government policies and the things we need to make that change happen. But I think good people are working on these problems and, and consumers want change. And, and, uh, and so I'm hopeful. And the biggest driver in the drop of the cost of producing renewable is what? was what? So originally, uh, let's talk about solar power first. It was just panel manufacturing. And as panels became more and more efficient, that's still the largest single component of an installation. But now it's the, it's not the majority of the cost. It's just the, the largest minority. Uh, now the whole installation, the, the, the racking, the, the groundwork, the electricity grid. Um, but it's no longer, um, it really is much less of a 
cost issue that's an impediment to, to growth of the sector it is the ability to connect solar to the grid or wind to the grid. Um, and so it's the grid infrastructure and upgrades that need essentially the work to, to match the deployment scale. Um, and, speed. Okay. and what percentage of energy in the US is produced from renewables at the moment? And where is it going? I, I, I couldn't give no. you the total generation. Okay. It's okay. it's less than 20. Okay. Um, more of it probably last year was more than 15. Yeah. There's a good base of hydro um, yeah. that exists. Hmm. But it's, it's deploying rapidly. And for the last number of years, the largest, um, by far the largest investment, um, global investment category within energy has been renewables. Great. And then how do you link this up with agriculture and your new baby? Seems obvious, right? <laughs> yeah, how obvious it is. I don't know. It's just the pollutants replacing. I now, I now introduce myself as a farmer um, when people ask what I do, and nobody takes me seriously. I don't know, what's, I don't know why. How do I link it up? It was, it was the same drivers that brought us to renewable energy brought us to farming, regenerative farming. There was, um, there was a historic industry operating in a environmentally friendly, unsustainable way that had grown up that way for lots of, of historic reasons that, uh, that had built efficiency in, uh, rather than uh, being able to be dynamic and being able to react to consumer and, and change. And so there was a large incumbent industry that was acting in a way that uh, we weren't excited about. There was an economic driver for sustainability. So in, in renewables, that was, that was driven by subsidy. In, in regenerative organic farming, that's driven by consumers' willingness to pay. And so the, the fact that organic produce in the U.S. costs significantly more than non-organic is because consumers see value in that. Um, and then the third bit is, is more personal. It was the, the way to access that opportunity required uh, active operational um, control. So it wasn't just an investment thesis. Um, it, was, it was a business opportunity, so to speak, and one that, that required management and time and people and as well as assets and investment. Um, and I think all of those things led to a, what we saw was a, a similar opportunity where there was economic growth uh, and a chance to make outsized profits by, for behaving in a, a more sustainable way. And so regenerative farming, unpack this term. Sure. I, so regenerative farming can mean just soil carbon matter. And, and sometimes it's used in that way. And people are talking about essentially how much carbon you can capture in the soil as a, as a great place um, to affect uh, um, or balance against uh, risks of climate change. A soil is a natural sink of carbon. There are lots and lots of studies that suggest that it could be the solution, the silver bullet to uh, stopping climate change by effectively putting carbon back into the soil. Um, and so that's a core tenant of regenerative farming. But it, for most people, including us, it has a broader definition. And so we think about it not just in terms of the soil, but the overall environmental impact. So waterways leaking nutrients into rivers and seas, 
<clears throat> we think about it in terms of um, the food systems that we support. So the food that lands on people's tables and how, uh, uh, how we choose seeds and how we choose cycles and what we grow. Um, and then we also think about it as the communities we operate in. So being a thought leader for, for farming and, and supporting individuals and communities that we work in. Um, and then we measure ourselves against all of those metrics. We, we have an outside, uh, outside firm that comes and audits all of our farms and, and tells us how we're doing. Um, okay, so two things I picked up here. One is sustainability, and this can bring us onto a, 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 another topic in a second, but on the communities. And when we spoke in our briefing, you mentioned MBOs. And this is not quite the community, but it is part of the community. So, and it is part of sustainable and better way of running business than just milking it for the profit. So, what do you do? And yeah, we, I mean, as much out of necessity as altruism, we, when we started the farming business, we found ourselves ripped across uh, or our time torn across two different young growing businesses that had lots of opportunity. And uh, on a personal basis, I felt myself as a bottleneck. I, I felt like I was the reason that that business wasn't doing as well as it could have done because too much was trying to go through me. Um, and that seemed like a, a waste of an opportunity. And we had lots of super capable uh, senior managers in that business both in the UK and in the US. <clears throat> and so we partnered with them to do a partial MBO where we, we essentially lent them the money to, to buy the business back from us, um, or at least a, a big portion of the business back from us. And it was the greatest thing we could have done. I mean, really giving that ownership over to the people who were running the business has made those businesses wildly successful. Uh, and frankly, much more successful than they ever would have been um, uh, with me running them or, or Tom running them or, or, or really any of us. Um, and so it's been it's been a great solution. And, it, it you know, the, you can't you can't substitute for ownership among management. There's that level of 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 uh, ownership that you need to make decisions uh, comes directly from from share ownership, it turns out, or at least it did for us. Mm. So basically, you've expanded the pie. Therefore, a smaller percentage out of a bigger pie is still we're, better. We're, <laughs> we're so much better off for it, yeah. all of us. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I'm mostly just thankful to continue to be a part of these things. Um, all right. So sustainability uh, in the topic there, when we were speaking, you said that you don't do sustainability for a business, but you build the business from when you think about the business, it's built in from the beginning. So, you know, we, I mean, we come across a lot of competitors and investors and people in our field, um, particularly in agriculture who are, are impact investors or uh, are doing this for impact reason or even charity operators. And I think we have a core tenant that, that impact comes from sustainable activity um, and sustainable business. And part of being sustainable is being profitable. 
charity will only go as far as as the original source of capital for that charity. Uh, and if you if you invest in in infrastructure or make investments in non-sustainable activity, you're fundamentally depleting the resources that are making you profitable today. And so core to what we do and core to the way we think about investment is that sustainability has to be a part of the mix. You have to be doing things that are adding to the overall picture, not just extracting from it. And in doing so, uh, you have to be making profits because those profits allow you to continue the business. Um, and if you don't, fine in the short term, you might make extraordinary profits or fine in the short term, you might be able to give away money but neither of those leads to long-term change. And so you mentioned giveaway money and you've been giving away some money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Mike is one of our, well, at the moment, the only gold salamander, although soon I hope that changes. And uh, you've established a scholarship and you've had three or four recipients, something like that. Or two, two or three, two. I think third. I do apologize. The plan is for yes. I think sorry. third is just. And just so, a... but so, can you talk about giving back and what made you establish this and how you think about giving back and the whole INSEAD connection? In fact, because now you've mentioned a few times your partner, who is from INSEAD, not from our promotion, and then you have Jeff Clay, and then you have other INSEAD. Isabel. So, Isabel, Isabel. So, I wanted you to. Yes. So, can can like expand on this whole team? Yeah. Uh, so, first of all, the team. I hope I made it clear. This is not just me. This is lots of other super capable people. My the partner I founded this with was one non-NCIAD guy who's an engineer, and the and then um, uh, an NCIAD um, uh, class a colleague from the the promotion after us, Tom Hill Norton. When we moved to the States, <clears throat> we knew that there was an opportunity in Texas. Um, Texas was a hugely exciting solar market. I was convinced that a non-Texan trying to develop assets in Texas was going to be a recipe for failure. So I called the one Texan I knew and said, hey, uh, what do you think? Uh, and so Jeff set up the Texas business. And so we effectively did it in partnership when we were running the farming business and struggling with operations and struggling with uh, the number of people we were hiring and the growth and all of the things that that make the business turn uh, i called uh isabel um and uh somehow she decided to join which has been just the best thing we've done and then my you know my couple of our senior uh, uh, senior leaders in the U.S. who did the MBO are both married to NCL people, which is how I met both of them through NCL people. And so it's been a huge part of my work life uh, since I started. It's been fundamental to, uh, to what's happened over the last 20 years. And so I, you know, I had a great time there. I continue to have a great time uh, uh, with NCL people all the time. And I, I know how unbelievably lucky I was to be able to go and be able to afford it, uh, borrow money, whatever I did to, to make it happen. And so that's the, the thought behind uh, wanting to give in general to INSEAD, as I just want to make it possible for other people to be that lucky uh, and go to INSEAD. The, the Belltown Scholarship is not just me, just to be clear, it's the um, Belltown which has set it up, um, was set up as a sustainability scholarship 
really thinking that if we could impact or influence, uh, a better way to say it, students today to think about sustainability in their career, we could have a huge impact on future generations by helping to create uh, essentially new business leaders that are focused on sustainability. So we look for people who have made a commitment to sustainability in their previous career running at Densiad and are interested in having a career that has an impact or has a sustainable element going forward. And that was the idea behind the scholarship. Super. Thank you so much. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. <laughs> so, all right. So, uh, with that, we can uh, turn to the quick round of questions. I don't know if you had time to think about it or if I'm going to surprise you now. Are you well, ready? I'm. I'm ready. Yeah. All right. So, your proudest achievement? A happy family. Success for you is uh, my kids being proud of what I do. Hmm. Happiness is having low expectations. Hmm, nice. Hmm, let me think. Biggest regret other than not becoming president? Obviously, second biggest regret because that's yeah. the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I'm losing touch with people, particularly the last few years. Uh, as COVID set in and I moved to the States, I, I would like to, to be keeping better touch with old friends. Well, I suppose if the kids are almost off to college. Kids are almost off. What keeps you awake at night or you sleep well? Uh, red wine. Red wine. Well, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Not so much away. It wakes me up in the middle of the night. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wish you had known or someone had told you? I, I think because of that economic cycle, uh, going through bad times, I, when we started the business, I always want to protect myself from failure. So I spent a lot of time thinking about downside solutions and managing through crisis and having backup plans, which has served me very well. I think I didn't plan for success mm. um, in the same way. Mm. Uh, and it's just now that I'm starting to realize that uh, thinking about what you're going to do when things go well is, is just as important as thinking about how to manage when things go badly. I can resonate with that. Uh, yeah, because bankers are always on the downside. So I've been trained in that. So if you had to do it all over again, what would you change? I would take my tuition money and buy uh, Apple stock. Instead yeah, of... <laughs> so many people say this. Are you an index of this? I used to look at, uh, I, I would every once in a while update how much you would have now if you invested all of your tuition in Apple stock. Last time I checked, it was about $22 million. Oh, ouch. <laughs> ouch. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. Get this, people. Well, the, the, the trick is let's find out now which one is the next step. That's okay. true. That's oh, true. We need some of your uh, people focused on AI to tell us. Mm. So retirement ever, never? How do you think about that? No, never. I, I can't. I can't really see it. If you had to pick one book everyone should read, which one would that be? Uh, good. I, I'm going to do two just because I've been doing uh, renewable energy and agriculture. Okay. I would say Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, which is a 
unbelievable near future book on climate change and the effects of climate change, which will keep you up at night. Um, but at the same time is, uh, is, is quite exciting and inspiring. And then the other one is, uh, the third plate by Dan Barber, um, which is about how food and, uh, our diets and cuisine needs to change to a more sustainable future. Mm -hmm. Most of my person, uh, Arturo Coelho, uh, just the best. A paddle player in the world right now and i'm recently obsessed with paddle and i can't get enough and so i would really like to be able to play like him <laughs> most despised public person that's a tough one there's so many good choices somewhere between uh well, it would have been you know david cameron and boris johnson for a long time but it's i think putin's really taken that that award all right. And the last one on a happy note, are you coming to reunion? Are you of coming? course. All right. Absolutely. All right. Now we can. Uh, super. So October 6th in Pontemblor, France, and the gala at the Chateau is scheduled for October 7th, Saturday. And this, in case anyone still doesn't know, was a conversation with Mike Kaplan, founder, CEO at Belltown Power in Philadelphia, PA these days. Thank you very much for your time, Mike. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing you in Ponty and I can show you where your name is because you didn't know there is a wall there, the wall of fame, the wall of the wall of pride, whatever. So I'll show you personally. Thank you so much, Melanie. It's great to talk to you again. Can't wait to you see you in person. Yep. You are listening to the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition. It is my hope to remind everyone what an interesting and dare I say colorful bunch of people we are and how much we can contribute to each other, be it through ideas, knowledge or mere inspiration. The podcast is inspired by the original Republic of INSEAD yearbook produced on paper 20 years ago by Oliver Bradley and team. Thank you, Oli and team, for this contribution to our class's memory and for letting me continue in the tradition, title and inspiration included. Creator and author of the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition am I, Milena Ivanova. Original music by Peter Dundakov with help from Their Films Productions. Stay tuned for more and remember to book your tickets for the 20-year reunion in Fontainebleau, October 6th, 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening.